Welcome to the Awakening Shalom Podcast. The Awakening Shalom Podcast is an opportunity for digital faith formation at Myers Park Baptist Church that accompanies the Awakening Series, a year-long journey of exploration and discernment which invites all people to come learn about the current social justice issues of the day and how they impact our faith. What we are awakening to is Shalom, the Hebrew word for the peace and beauty that exists when we are living in right relationship with God, ourselves, other human beings, and all created things. Welcome back to Proud Theology. This is our final episode of wow. this four-part series. Already over. It's already over, but uh, <laughs> the conversation should continue, hopefully, yes. in your homes and in your personal relationships and in your institutional relationships. You can keep having this conversation as we have learned that it's ever-evolving. Wow, yeah. Right. We've so, learned so much. Yeah. So, you know, the, I don't think it's ever going to be over. So don't don't leave the podcast thinking you've learned it all because we certainly haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm Mia McLean and I'm here with Ben Boswell. Yes. And so let's let's jump right on in, Ben. Um, mm. Our shout out for the week. Yes. Our <laughs> shout out this week is for Transcend Charlotte, an organization here in Charlotte. The mission of Transcend Charlotte is to promote authenticity, connection, and social justice by empowering transgender individuals and all gender-diverse or gender-nonconforming people impacted by oppression and or trauma. Transcend Charlotte believes in person-centered rather than identity-centered language. That's mm. an interesting one. We talked about identity a lot last, last time. Yeah. And do not discriminate based on sex, gender, gender identity, gender expression, sexual orientation, race, color, religion, age, ability, mental illness, injury, or beliefs. They respect all identities. That sounds kind of like our statement at it the beginning does. of worship. When I was right? reading this earlier, I was like, wow, they have a lot going on here, which yes. is good. So really definite shout out to Transcend Charlotte as we continue to shout out. And a shout out final in this final episode to all the organizations that we mentioned mm-hmm. this time. Time Out Youth, Rain. P-Flag and Transcend Charlotte and all the other organizations in our city who are doing good work supporting and advocating for LGBTQ people in our community. Absolutely. And I believe, um, as we discussed in the last episode, many of these organizations were out for Charlotte Pride. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they had tables and, you know, they have very accessible websites if you want to know more about them. That's right. Um, very, very good work done in this city. And I'm grateful for that. Pride was a very queer event. It was. <laughs> It was very crowded and, uh, yes, but very, very hot, but very fun. Yes. yes. Very, it was a great, great year for pride. Yeah. So let's do a, a brief review of last week. Um, we walked through what Chang calls the four strands of mm-hmm. that lead up to what we have now called queer theology. Mm-hmm. Um, and we started off with apologetics, which we had also talked about the previous, uh, I guess, episode two. Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah, uh, Lynn Tonstead talks a lot about apologetics. Yeah. And I've been thinking a lot about apologetics because I feel, I feel like, you know, that's the, that's the heart of our work. Yeah. Unfortunately, we have to do so much of that. And I'll get into a little bit of that when I talk about biblical criticism with um, what's her name? Lightsey Lightsey today. Um, But, you know, we have to, we have to know the apologetics because, you know, we're, we're coming up against people who are reciting these scriptures and we're having to say, no, actually, yeah, no, actually, no. It's so crazy. I was doing premarital counseling yesterday, last evening for a young lesbian couple, Uh, such a great couple. And, um, two things about this couple that are great. So they were, they didn't really self-identify as lesbian, 
they were just on one of these websites where you can swipe left for men, right for women. Mm. And they had a profile. And one day they were both just kind of like, I don't know, let me see. And mm-hmm. swiped the other direction mm. and landed on each other. And now they're getting married. Mm. And they had never dated women before. They're just the first woman they've ever dated. Hmm. So it's just wild how, you know, folks work. And so yeah. I don't know if they would identify as lesbian or bisexual or what they would identify by. It doesn't really matter to yeah. me, honestly. Yeah. Um, but they're, we're planning their wedding, and we're starting to talk about scriptures for the wedding. And one of the one of the partners says, she says, you know, it'd be great if we could have some scriptures that really. Um, overcome the clobber passages and i was like i I was like how do you know about like how how do you think about the clobber passages how you've heard them she's like well even though we don't really go to church a lot and we haven't been in church we've heard the clobber passages used on us so often Mm. that we want our service to be an alternative to what some of our friends and family who are coming to it have heard about the clobber passages unpack that term just okay so (laughs) The clobber passages, uh, and people think there are different numbers of them depending upon how much they want to clobber people. These are passages that are used to clobber LGBTQ people. Okay, so your Leviticus, This is your blah, blah, blah. Genesis 19, right. Sodom and Gomorrah, yeah. Leviticus, Abomination, yeah. your Romans 1, your Paul line letters. Your, mm-hmm. um, and, and so... Um, some people have called them the clobber passages in their entire books, apologetic books that mm-hmm. are utilized, that are created just to deal with each of these passages. That's the whole book, a chapter yeah. on each passage, yeah. a, re- a reinterpretation of the text that's being used to clobber LGBTQ people. Yeah. So the fact that this young couple that doesn't isn't even really very churched is thinking about in their wedding how to overcome the clobber passages just proves your point about how important the work of, of apologetics are. Yeah, I mean, we have to do it, and you have to be ready to come back. And I always said in you know seminary, I said, we are graduating entire classes of seminarians who, you know, the only verses they're able to quote are like Matthew 25 and Micah 6, 8. <laughs> and when it comes to actually having to do the work of apologetics, yeah. are unable to actually say, well, actually, Genesis 19 means X, yeah. Y, and Z. Or one of the historical mm. criticism tells us that, you yes. know. And so, uh, you know, it's it's not it's not so much that we have evolved away from it. It's just that we've evolved to a more robust understanding mm. of what queer theology is. But apologetics is so important. Yeah, I think some people who do some of the best work on this are people who spend time looking at the history of the interpretation of a passage Mm -hmm. and how it was interpreted by the church fathers and mothers, how it was interpreted in the medieval period, how it was then interpreted during the Reformation, and then how it was interpreted post-Reformation and gone and on and on, evangelicalism in America. And what you can show is how a passage has evolved in its interpretation, which all alone by itself is very helpful. Mm -hmm. But then you can also say, and look at, you can see how we got where we are. Yeah. You know, so people who do that, I think, have the it's kind of a way to do both a kind of a, a mid a middle ground between Tonstad and the true apologetics is mm-hmm. to go back and look at the whole history of interpretation, because to do that, you also have to look at philosophers and non-Christians who are writing about theology and movements of dominant forces that are appropriating the Bible for the use of for the use of power and not for just typical interpretation Mm -hmm. and it gets you a sense that the bible has been used for good and ill and a lot more for ill Mm -hmm. throughout human history right Mm -hmm. and you can kind of see the evolution of it yeah yeah 
And so then we transitioned to liberation theology, and we talked a little bit about the history of that yeah. in terms of black liberation theology, Latino liberation theology, yeah. um, and a host of other theologies that grew out of that. Womanism was a reaction to black liberation theology as well. That's right. Um, and so there was a queer liberation theology, or gay, actually gay liberation theology. Right. And then we transitioned to relational, which was very feminist-based, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. about how women relate to each other, and a, a new theology was sort of... Uh, born out of that. And then where Chang lands is that queer theology, which right. is kind of the term that has been used out of queer theory. Right. That's right. Yeah. And then and you moved into Lightsey after that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Lightsey's a big experiential. And you talked about the four... Oh, yeah, the that's reason, right. scripture, <laughs> scripture, tradition. The Wesleyan quadrilateral. Yes. And as a Methodist, yes. of course, Lightsey has that. So, yeah, the the four the four places that we draw on, the four sources that we draw on for theology. Mm-hmm. Scripture, tradition, reason, experience. Yeah. And, you know, you can kind of see where someone's going to fall on the liberal conservative theological spectrum based on what they think is most important. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's up there very heavy on experience, they're going to tend to be more liberal. If they're yeah. heavy on the Bible, they're going to tend to be more conservative. But really, you need all four sources in conversation with each other right. all right. the time. And, and, and Lightsey would argue that womanists are heavenly experiential because the interpretations that were handed down, even, even though... They value scripture. Yeah. The interpretations that were handed down were not servicing black women. Right. Even black liberation theology. Right. Yeah. That's right. But the best, you know, some of the, the womanists that I prefer are the, <laughs> are the womanists who, that, who talk, start with experience and then go into scripture like Sisters in the Wilderness, the Lord's yeah. That whole book yeah. is about scripture. Yeah. It's like a biblical exegetical uh, exegesis of the same story over and over again throughout the whole book. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's from the black female experience yeah. that comes back and looks at the story of Hagar and then re re narrates it to me that, that of course, but, but that's cause I'm a pastor and I like to use the Bible for stuff. Right. You know, right. Like same. preaching. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that, those are the, that's the, the trajectory we've been on. Yeah. And so before we jump in today, I want to open with a quote, our last quote of the mm-hmm. series. Mm-hmm. And this is by Janet mock and, uh, Everybody in here knows that I'm obsessed with Pose, so we just <laughs> so Janet is one of the producers, um, and she is the first Black transgender Emmy Award nominee mm. for a producer. Mm. Uh, Chas Bona was the first trans- transgender person who t- was nominated for the producer role, but she is the first Black transgender person, transgender wow. woman. So I am I can't wait to the Emmys. Pose is nominated for a lot of things, and yes. so we'll see what happens. We'll be cheering for Pose, um, but this is what Janet Mock says. I believe that telling our stories, first to ourselves and then to one another and the world, is a revolutionary act. It is an act that can be met with hostility, exclusion, and violence. It can also lead to love, understanding, transcendence, and community. I hope that my being real with you will help empower you to step into who you are and encourage you to share yourself with those around you. Mm. Yes, and that was from her publication, Redefining Realness, My Path to Womanhood, Identity, Love, and So Much More. Mm. So have, you, have you read that? I have not read the entire book, oh, but good. I've read okay. snippets and right. um, activists, transgender activists, and a really phenomenal person that wow. I follow. Sounds like a great book. Yeah, I have to go pick that I up. I think that that opening quote uh, requires a moment. For us on this day, we're recording this on August 20th, mm. 
21st. 21st? Is it 21st? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> anyway, we're recording it in a very important week as, as, um, we remember the, the first moment, uh, that slaves landed on the shores of America at 400th year anniversary of that. And as I look at her, Quote here, Janet Mock, she says, I believe that telling our stories first to ourselves, then to one another and the world is a revolutionary act that can be met with hostility, exclusion and violence. It is not surprising that the New York Times 1619 project and other Mm -hmm. articles and books about the history of slavery and racism in our country are being met with hostility and resistance right now by many. As they say, we don't want to, we don't really want to look back at this history. Mm. So as you try to, as, as some try to tell the story, right? As Janet Mock tries to tell her story to the world, folks don't want to deal with it. Yeah. And it's sort of like the way that people reacted to, when they see us, the the Evo DuVernay um, Central Park Five Netflix documentary, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to, I don't want to see I don't that. I want to see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the reactions are so strong. Um, so it just shows how powerful story is. Yeah, right? and to be able to tell tell the truth about what's mm. actually happening in our lives. Um, and so I really want to get into um, a little bit of storytelling today as we talk about who God is yeah. in queer theology. Where does God fit in Mm. queer theology? Mm -hmm. Right. We've been kind of talking about what queer means and what theology means and the evolution of language. But there are some people who want to know, what does God believe about me? What does Jesus say about me? Where does the Holy Spirit fit into all of this? And so we're going to have a little conversation about that today. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um, So let's jump right in. We want to talk about telling truths today. So Mm. one of... um, one of the criticisms that is in Lynn Tonstad's book is about uh, Barth. Yeah. And I want you to talk a little bit about that, what she was talking about. Yeah, I mean, I kind of mentioned the story just in passing in the last episode, but uh, she has this thing about how, it, you know, Bart had this secretary that he had an affair with while he was writing the Church Dogmatics, and Tonstead says, you know, what if Bart, while writing the Church Dogmatics, had talked, told the truth about his own sexuality? Mm-hmm. While he was writing one of the most important, I mean, look at the title, Dogmatics, right? One of the most important dogmatic theological treatises ever written in history. I mean, of, of the most, of the most important ones, Augustine, Aquinas, or most influential, Mm -hmm. Augustine, Aquinas, Bart, these are the ones, right? Mm -hmm. Um, what if Bart had written about his affair, Mm -hmm. honestly, and said, you know, this is what's happening and I, you know, Here's my view on it and actually written a dogmatic about this, either justifying or not. It doesn't matter. Just been truthful about it. And so what I think Tonstadt's trying to point out is that a lot of theologians have bracketed off sexuality and gender discussions from their theology and tried to write as if they are objective from that. Mm -hmm. Right. Particularly sort of white male cisgender heterosexual German yeah. or American systematic theologians who don't feel like who have the privilege not to ha- be have to talk about their sexuality because mm-hmm. they are considered in the dominant or normative mm-hmm. place and so are not forced to reckon with the way that their sexuality interacts with their their theology. Yeah. And so what that leaves us with is a place where we learn about Tillich and we learn about Bart and we learn about recently in the last five years, uh, 10 years, John Howard Yoder, who's a very influential theologian who had some very 
uh, unfortunate and painful uh, and oppressive actions with women who were grad students of his. Mm -hmm. These are extremely influential theologians, Mm -hmm. some of the most influential in American history. Um, And yet they don't have they did not spend a lot of time writing about their sexuality. Right. Um, Actually, Yoder does have a piece on this where he doesn't talk about his own stuff, what he's doing, but he tries to justify a a uh, physical relationship between men and women that's not sexual. It's a very strange piece of art writing. Mm. But anyway, um, so I think that's Tonstead trying to say, let's get truthful about our material existence. This is sort of similar to some of the other discussions we've had about bodies on the podcast and how Mm. a lot of theology doesn't take our material reality seriously. It we don't right. talk about the body. We, don't, we separate theology from the body. And that's just that. I mean, as a Christian, that doesn't make sense, because if you're talking about the incarnation, right, right, right. none of this make you can't separate it. That's right. You know? Yeah. So you have to deal with the body. But so much theology has been written kind of a Gnostic um, theologies that are dualistic, separate mm-hmm. body from soul, or body from spirit. Yeah. And we we are now coming back to reckon with the history of that, because what it has done it is it has left things like sexuality to um, into, put it in a particular category of morality. Mm-hmm. And, and it's been only really dealt with through a Victorian sort of Western white male cis heterosexual dominant lens. Mm-hmm. And all other things that are not fitting within it have been oppressed or yeah. excluded or alienated or attacked. Yeah. And, and so even, now, yeah. Even in terms of when I think about... A lot of the popular writers, um, you think about like a Gandhi, like a theologian. I call it Gandhi a theologian. Yeah, who, who really advocate for abstinence, right? That's mm. the that's the most sexual you're gonna get, right? Right. And that's a very it's a very praised. Sure, like Stop. celibacy, yeah. right? Right, like, oh, you're going to be closer to God if you just do this, uh, abstain from this thing that's going to separate you. So even talking about sex in a heteronormative way is mm. not, it's not a common practice. And much of what we've read from theologians from no. third century on up, or, you know. Yeah, I don't know where I read this in which of these books, but, or maybe it's not even in here. I'm reading so much now with yeah. these three books. I don't know where things come from. But somebody was saying that there can be no... Uh, queer theology or or queer positive theology that that denies pleasure. Yeah, I don't know where I read that, but have you? You know what I'm talking that about. Sounds familiar, but I can't. <laughs> Somebody said that, like if you didn't, you're denying pleasure. Yeah. You can't have a. Oh no, it was saying there is no liberative theology that denies pleasure. Yeah, that's what it was saying. Mm-hmm. So there may be other non-liberative theologies that deny pleasure, but uh, the, a, cel- a theology of celibacy would not be liberative. Yeah. Yeah. You know, absolutely. So I think that I, I I would strongly encourage us to have theologians who are able to talk about their sexuality and integrate it into the theology, which is why Tonstad praises Marcelia Althus Reed so much. And there's a there's this quote that deals with truth at the front of the Money, Sex, and God chapter, where Tonstad deals with Althus Reed's theology. Mm-hmm. It's such a powerful quote. I just want to read it. Mm-hmm. Um, This is Tonstead writing. If theology told the truth, it would speak of bodies, of flesh. Althus Reed's theology is thoroughly materialist, both in assumptions and content. She worries about the false abstractions whereby theological categories become solidified, almost as if they were real. 
So I thought that that's a really good way to deal with truth, right? Mm. And she's saying, if you're not talking about bodies in your theology, you're not telling the truth. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's really helpful. And so that that gets at, that sort of starts us down this path of dealing with God, the the how God relates to sexuality and gender has to be a God that takes into seriousness bodies. Yeah. Otherwise, we're just dealing with an abstraction, right? Yeah, and I think that for so long, most of the, the, the theological publications were written by men, and so nobody's acknowledging the body because you don't have to if you're sitting from a place of privilege. Mm. Speak, preach. Right? So yeah. if, 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 if there's Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and Father and Son are men, you're not thinking about, oh, my body doesn't... Something's off with the body because you're identifying with either God or with Christ. Right. That's right. <laughs> Which is so funny because like as uh, I can't remember if Alvis Reader Thomas said, who says this, how can you have a father or a son without some kind of sexual act? Yeah. You know, yeah. like it's, it's ridiculous for us to use parental imagery and imagine sex was not involved. Right. Which is also part of the problem with the virgin birth story and its relationship to queer theology. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. We, we look at that doctrine and part of the way that that doctrine has been utilized is to take sex out of the incarnation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We don't want the incarnation to include sex. Yeah. Because if it does, then it might be sex positive. Right. And that would be really bad. Or sex negative. I mean, or we could get or into sex the, the, rape, yeah. the yeah, divine the whole, rape thing that right. people love. That's to, right. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't want to deal with all that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we just want to we, we want to make it the Holy Spirit and Mary and it has nothing to do with sexuality. Right. At all. She was right. just a, n- nothing went wrong that night. She's a sweet person. Well, she could have been a sweet person, but yeah. we know we will never know. <laughs> yeah. Nothing happened that yeah. was sexual. Yeah. Good or bad that night. We, we right. it's just it was a holy in, in event. Yeah. That has by holy. We mean. Totally spiritual event. Yeah. You know, but yet, and yet the marks are born in her body. Somehow this spiritual event then creates a, a pregnancy. Right. She still had to give birth, even if it were a spiritual event. Which the problem with that, of course, then is it makes it seem like only women have bodies, right? Like there's this spiritual encounter and then mm-hmm. the woman bears the marks in their body, but the man doesn't, mm-hmm. right? Like the Joseph doesn't, mm-hmm. right? And it's, it seems like there's spiritual stuff and then there's bodily stuff. It seems to almost create the duality. Yeah. But yeah. Interesting. But God has a lot to do with bodies. Absolutely. <laughs> good, the good and the bad and the ugly. Uh, yes. Amen. And I wanted to kind of jump into Chang. Okay. Ch- Chang, um, if you ever, if you all pick up Chang's book, I, I, I highly recommend it because it kind of lays out, I'll bite his theology, but mm. it lays out a very strong systematic theology. That yes. is that is queer theology, right? So Chang walks us through, um, starting in chapter three, page forty-three. Chang walks us through his thoughts about where God fits into all of this conversation, where Jesus fits in. He goes yeah. to the Holy Spirit. That's right. That's right. Then he goes to the, where the sacraments fit in. And what Chang is is trying to tell us is that radical love is God. And so if mm. God is radical love, then God um, God creates Jesus to be a vessel of radical love. Thus, Mary is the bearer of that vessel of radical love, right? Right. Um, and then he talks about you know stuff like communion being a uh, a way to receive radical love and grace That's from right. God. That's so right. he walks us through theology, and whether you agree or disagree about kind of his use of the Trinity and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. some of his language, I think it's a very necessary conversation. Um, and one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about in terms of um, this God conversation is. Um, a lot of the a lot of the struggles around the AIDS and HIV 
epidemic in the early 80s. Yeah. Not yeah. that it's not existing now, but it sure, sure. certainly is. And Chang talks about this a little bit on page 54 when he's talking about Malcolm, uh, Malcolm Edwards, mm-hmm. um, a gay post-liberal theologian. Um, but I thought a lot about the story around AIDS and how a lot of that was rooted in unhealthy the- theologies, mm. unhealthy conversations about God. Say um, more about that. You think about, you know, how it got out of hand mm-hmm. and it went mm-hmm. it went uncontrolled and unattended to so long. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of people died because of people's unhealthy stories about God, unhealthy theologies. Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, let's talk about those. I think w- one of them was that I heard and also have then read about was that some people believed it was a gay disease. Mm hmm. And that God was using it to exterminate gay people. Mm-hmm. And that is extremely horrific and theological malpractice. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And But if you believe that, or even if you start to spread that, you can see how a politician... Mm-hmm. You know, or a president might be slower on responding to a medical crisis, right? Because they have bad theology. That's right, right? And that's where, as you've said on multiple times on this podcast, that theology theologies are not contained within church and religious circles. They have mm-hmm. they do political work in the world. They do, and they do a lot of negative political work in the world, mm-hmm. where they hurt people, and the consequences of those theologies have. Have uh, they really have really negative consequences on people's bodies? Right, um, and I think about other other ways in which unhealthy theologies have <laughs> have uh, uh, infiltrated our society. When I think about when Hurricane Katrina, ha- uh, Katrina uh, happened, and yes. everybody was preaching these sermons about how God destroyed New Orleans because it was a debaucherous city. Yeah, because of debauchery or homosexuality. Homosexual, is what I heard because you know we have the Southern Decadence Festival, this big. Yeah. Big gay, well, they call it gay festival, but now maybe it's queer is the right word. But, um, you know, God had to come in and wash all the filth out because we were just sinning. I mean, a lot of people <laughs> said that. That was like four or five different evangelical oh, yeah. talking heads. Absolutely. Pat Robertson. You Absolutely. Know. I mean, 2,000 people died and, you know, yeah. and you're, you're mouthing off about how God, you know, had to wash it away, you know. And right. Only right. the good survived. Noah and right. Noah's people survived. Yeah. And then when there's a hurricane in a small town that's very conservative, they never say that that's for the sin mm-hmm. of conservative theology. Yeah. I mean, it's just amazing how there's a picking and choosing. Yeah. Yeah. But and it's still destructive. It's destructive. I mean, people died. I mean, I, I think about the, the, the many people who, um, who couldn't get treatment because it wasn't, mm. it wasn't available to them because of somebody's theology about God in mm. relation to queerness or sexuality mm. or gender. Yeah. Um, well, it was, it, I mean, just going back to our 1619 conversation at the beginning. Yeah. Slavery was a, Christian theological idea. Yeah. You know, even, I mean, Christian is a hard word to put near that because I don't think it's Christian, but Christians had this theological malpractice that justified slavery. And Mm -hmm. that's why we are where we are today. Yeah. Because of that Christian, that bad theology. Yeah. Yeah. And then on the flip side of that, there's this whole theodicy conversation. Mm. So not from the outside looking in, but somebody who is suffering or dying from this disease yeah, is saying, well, God? where is God now? You know, yeah, if I'm dying. Yeah. Why did God do this to me? Yeah. yeah. Or why, why are my friends dying? Right. Which is those people had a, an interesting journey. And so I think Chang wants to open up this room, a uh, room for God to be this radical love figure. Yes. And I think that like it's be, 
I always find it really important to define what radical love means because love mm-hmm. is a word that is thrown around a lot. And mm-hmm. pretty much every Christian in America, if you were asked them, would say they agree with love. And yet they seem to vote very different and yeah. live very different. So uh, and think about queerness very differently. Yeah. So I, like when I when I see throughout Chang associating God as the coming out of radi- as radical love, which I love that kind of coming out imagery, mm-hmm. um, and Jesus as the embodiment of radical love, and the Spirit as the return and the empowerment of radical love for the church in the world. Every chapter talks about how radical love is defined as crossing boundaries mm-hmm. and dissolving them. Mm-hmm. It's not just crossing them. But then dissolving those boundaries, and I can, and that's why it's that's how it's tied to queerness, as yeah. we've talked about before. That the boundaries are what um, we've set up these boundaries, yeah, uh, uh, and that oftentimes what queerness looks like is dissolving a boundary or deconstructing a boundary or showing that fluidity is real and st- and that it's not static. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's interesting to, t- to talk about it thematically the way that God embodies radical love by co- crossing and then dissolving boundaries and then the way Jesus does that and the mm-hmm. way the Spirit does that. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about, in addition to that, I've been thinking about Jesus as non-binary. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe, I, I'm not I'm not speaking about gender. I'm, I'm speaking of the boundary crossing from human to divine. And there's all these debates oh, about, sure. yeah, yeah, like, you know, is is Jesus divine? Is he 100% human? Or is yeah. he both? You know, yeah, um, yeah. that's age old debates. But what if Jesus is non-binary? We've, right. we've created this binary between human and divine. Perhaps yeah. Jesus is somewhere in between in this liminal space. Right. Or, or transcends these binaries yeah. that we put on him. Yeah. Or them. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Is it appropriate to call Jesus a him? I mean, that's part of, so part of the other thing that happens, we see Jesus as having a non-sexual life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, but you know, remember, we only have a three-year snapshot here. Mm-hmm. You know? And we also, like, it, it's, we're so uh, good and adept at removing the sexuality from Scripture that we we take away all the passages where a woman comes in and and it is is you know anointing Jesus's feet and having mm-hmm. this very intimate encounter and Mary is sitting at Jesus's feet and you know um it's not just the Dan Brown Da Vinci code and the and the Cynthia Borgios of the world that have reinsected uh, reinserted sexuality into scriptures it's been there all along and we've just been denying it or yeah. we forget that Peter had a wife how you can't have a mother-in-law who's sick if you don't have a wife yeah. right and and uh, you talk about um, so many other places when Jesus deals with a woman who is caught in adultery. We imagine that these passages are not wrought with sexuality, mm-hmm. but they are. Yeah. And we we but but then there's also Jesus's life where he does not necessarily, or at least we don't have recorded, engage in sexual activity with anyone of any gender mm-hmm. or anyone performing any gender. Right. And so all we have is his life itself. But in in but. Even in his life, to your non-binary question, Jesus performs all sorts of types of gender. Yeah. Right? He performs acts that would seem more like feminine, more motherly, more mm-hmm. in the performance of female gender. And he performs acts that would perform more like masculinity. Mm-hmm. And but So what that means is that he's constantly blurring the lines between these two yeah. because he's one identity in performing in multiple ways, yeah. I think. Yeah. 
I mean, there are some people, I don't remember which book we were reading, but there are some people who were like, Jesus was bisexual, or that, you know. Yeah, no, 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 go ahead and claim that. Yeah, right? no, claim Paul being a. Deeply repressed gay man. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's how, uh, who, who put it that way? Um, came here. John Dominic Crossan calls Paul a deeply repressed gay man. Yeah. That's been, I've heard that several times. Yeah. Yeah. Which I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I kind of think of Jesus's existence as in this, in this space that transcends the categories mm. that we have placed on ourselves. And so when we talk about identity, Jesus transcends some of the human uh, formed identities that yeah. we have placed on ourselves. Well, I think this, I think it's important to note that to remember that queerness doesn't just relate to sexuality and gender mm-hmm. that we talked about at the beginning. Queerness is like is fluidity and crossing boundaries. And I talked about the, the term transgression. Mm-hmm. And so when Jesus crosses a boundary with someone who is excluded or ostracized from society or oppressed or crosses, think of all the things that we don't think are sexual that Jesus does like, um, like touch a woman in public. Mm-hmm. We think that that's like, oh, well, you we don't, touch women all the time. You, no, but some Orthodox society, Jews, see, nope. yeah, still today yeah. do not. Yeah. yeah. And so we don't see them as sexual acts because we're interpreting them from a 21st nice. century context. Mm-hmm. But he's constantly crossing and transgressing boundaries. Yeah. And he's doing so in ways that are sexual and ways that are not sexual. Yeah. Or ways that are overtly gendered and ways that are not overtly gendered. But every time he's doing it, he's engaging in queerness. Yeah. As defined by our queer theologians here, who would say that the act of transgressing boundaries is an act of queerness. Yeah. Every time you transgress, cross a boundary, and then try to dissolve it and create this non-binary world to live in, Mm -hmm. destroying dualisms so that we can live in a a more holistic or integrated, maybe is another way to put it, integrated Mm -hmm. world, Mm -hmm. is an act of queerness. Yeah, yeah. And do you think that Mary, so how do you feel about Mary's role in all of this? I love Mary. (laughs) (laughs) I do see her as the embodiment of radical love also. Mm -hmm. Um, And I only only bring up Mary because that's a huge, that's a huge part of like the work that a lot of, uh, at least my peers are doing around the incarnate. What that mm-hmm. means to yeah. for our theology to imagine, reimagine Mary's yes moment to God, and yeah, and what that means for us. You know, I think the yes moment, while important, is it should be less important than the the act of bearing radical love into the world. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, it's the labor, yeah, and oh. the bearing that's that's more significant. I mean, mm-hmm. I do I do love the. You know, the moment of, yes, let it be with me. And yeah, yeah. however you think about that, it's, mm-hmm. it's a complicated, scandalous night mm-hmm. in the history of the world that changes the world forever. But I also think, you know, regardless of what happens on that night, whether, however you want to narrate it, what, what the, the consequences are the same. Yeah. It is her having to bear in her body radical love into the world that she knows later than when she, she comes to learn very quickly is going to undergo death and violence. Mm-hmm. And, and, and at the same time, I, we, we, not to sentimentalize it, we have Luke's Magnificat giving Mary a voice in this saying that she understands very early on that this is the embodiment of God's radical love and promise of radical love for the world to turn and turn things upside down on their head, right? And to flip the world upside down and to create the kingdom of God in the world through this radical love that is being born through her. 
So I, I see her as the bearer of ra- God's radical love. That's mm-hmm. sort of in her flesh. Yeah. You know? Interesting. Okay. But also, in some ways, she's she becomes, even though the, the church is trying to do exegetical work to make her sinless, Yeah, I see them actually doing backwards work of making her queer. When you start talking about Mary giving birth without having to have had sex, yeah. you're starting to create this sense of queerness. Yeah. She's crossing all kinds of boundaries, mm-hmm. right? So she's not, you can't really call her necessary. You can't really look at her as cis het, mm. right? In the same way you, you would looking back because she doesn't perform that yeah. always. Yeah. This is interesting. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting, conver- she's a very interesting character. Yeah. So this is this is Chain's wheelhouse, and so once he gets past the first couple of chapters of leading us up to what queer theology is, he goes into his systematic theology. So I yeah. would heavily recommend that you um, check it out. Yeah, check it out. Read what he has to say about the Holy Spirit and mm-hmm. the sacraments that he believes in as an mm-hmm. Episcopal priest. So um, I think that's very important work. Yeah, yeah, and I think this idea of God as as radical love and Jesus as the embodiment of radical love and Mary as bearing radical love and as the spirit as empowering the church to act in radical love and radical love as crossing and transgressing boundaries is something that our church and others who have who tend toward a more progressive theology can hold on to and have a connection to queer theology. Yeah, yeah. And so one of the our last author who gives us some insight about God is is Pamela Lightsey. Mm hmm. And, of course, as we've mentioned before, her insights a little bit different. It's coming from a different place. Yep. And one of the things that I really appreciate about Lightsey as somebody who loves biblical criticism mm. is that she really lays out what that is mm-hmm. um, in, in terms of her work. And it can sometimes fall into the category of apologetics. Sure. Yeah. But I think that it's very necessary work as she moves through what it was like to come into her being as mm. a black lesbian woman in mm-hmm. a society, in a black church culture that did not... Right. approve or affirm her right um who she was um mm. and so she she takes us on this journey a very experiential theological journey <laughs> but um she also shows us a little bit about the the history of criticism and how we have journeyed through this conversation about queer theology and she talks about historical criticism which mm. for those of you who don't know it always points back to the author's original meaning. Yeah. So when we were talking about Genesis 19 earlier, what would you say the original meaning is? Oh, in hospitality. In hospitality. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. Not in hospitality. So it's a, it's a historical criticism that says actually it was rape of women and men because it was about power and yes. X, Y, and Z, yes. right? Oh, yeah. Um, and so she's laying down that framework from a biblical standpoint. And then she moves us into, on page 43, um, traditional literary criticism, which mm-hmm. talks about the meaning of words. Yeah. So yeah. in the Hebrew, it says this, but it really... It <laughs> right. Well, one of the most famous of that is the word arsenokotoi in the New Testament, which is translated as homosexuality, but that word didn't exist until 1860-something. Hmm. And so the word is very difficult to translate, and it, it may mean everything from pedophilia, which mm-hmm. is not the same as yes. same-sex relations, or pederasty, which is the the approved social practice of sexualizing young boys and young girls mm. by people of the same sex. Yeah. Uh, or it may mean just men uh, pretending or taking on the performance of femininity. Yeah. Uh, in, in which case, it doesn't 
it does not have a defin- it does not definitively condemn homosexuality. And so that word work mm-hmm. with looking at the Greek is very helpful. Yeah, and so that's really big. And then she leads us into what she talks about being the the new dispensation. Mm. And so the argument that many Protestants use is that look, God is you know this is a new this is a new era. Yeah, God is dealing with humanity differently. So what took place in the Bible times does not necessarily yeah. translate over. Yeah, another way that people would talk about that. In fact, we have this word in our church's history book because George Heaton was a big proponent of it in 1943, which is progressive revelation. Hmm. And that is that the God, God did not stop revealing God's self when revelation was finished. Yeah. And that God continues to reveal God's self to humanity. And therefore, just because it says it in the Bible does not mean that that's what God's revealed word is. Yeah. Yeah. God is still speaking. So, like likes he says on 46 is quoting this uh, Dr. Smith. She says that God, God was before, after and transcends the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. And she also quotes, she says, and on that same page, she says, as queers, we declare that God cannot be limited. God is not finite. So she's that's right. She's opening up this queer theology by saying there are no boundaries. We're mm. we're we're transgressing or transcending the yeah, boundaries. Absolutely. That's right. Yeah. yeah, I love that. And I think I think it's helpful for folks to know the apologetic tools that they have to use to combat the clobber passages and mm-hmm. to overcome. They have the tool of Greek to go back to the Greek and Hebrew. They have s- historical criticism to mm-hmm. go back to the historical context. They have literary criticism to read something in its time um, and in its moment and understand it in its context. So they have a lot of tools to do that. And as progressive Christians, we can also say, and even with all that, we mm-hmm. st- and it still doesn't get us where we want to, we can just say, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. God, won't she do it? Has shown us something wonderful, yeah. right? Something new. There's a new revelation. Yeah, God I is think still it's speaking. really helpful. Yeah, right? yeah. But the flip side of that is <laughs> the accusations that we are mm. being, you know, mm. heretics, or sure, yeah. um, we're all going to hell, <laughs> yeah. um, or what? Or what Lighty talks about is the accusations of eisegesis. Yeah. Which people people run to that really quickly. They say, "Oh, you're re- instead of pulling from the text, you're reading too much into it. You're reading yeah. your own agenda into the text." Yeah, and so that's a common argument that you, you will have if you try to go head to head with a biblical literalist. They're going to be like, "Oh, eisegesis." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there's no such thing Bang. as. And, right. <laughs> I don't exactly. think well, people cannot do that. That's what, well, that's what she says, and that's what my preaching professor said. Oh, but you know, abs- you know, people are still going to say. And those who claim yeah. eisegesis are probably doing it. Yeah, you know, because they imagine that somehow they're they are they are objectively free from their American exceptionalism and their gender, you know, mm-hmm. normativity mm-hmm. and dominance, their sexuality, their um, their political perspective, their being living in the 21st century, their privilege that none yeah. of those things none color the way matters. they read scripture. Right. But in fact, we're all reading scripture through those lenses, lenses. Yep. All, you know, and we bringing everything to the text with us. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, one thing I wanted to kind of talk about when you um, as to kind of come back to Tonstad from Lightsey mm. is to bring up this this question of materiality again about bodies. Yes. yes. Talk about the money. Yeah. I mean, this chapter called Money, Sex, God really got me thinking about something we've talked about on the podcast a couple of times is why is queer theory, why is queer theology, queer theory the foundation for queer theology? Mm-hmm. And what happens if you do what Tonstad suggests and go back and ground your 
your work, not in apologetics, but in queer theory, mm-hmm. what does the result look like? The result looks a lot like, as she says, Marcelia Althus reads theology, which is a liberation version, mm-hmm. a liberation strand, as Chang would call it. Yeah. But when you begin to do that, as we mentioned in reading Light uh, Tonstad, that quote that I read earlier is, we sometimes forget that um, queer theory came out of the Frankfurt School, which is a, a movement of philosophers and theologians reacting to three people. Nietzsche, Feuerbach, and Marx. Hmm. Mostly Marx. Yeah. So like liberation theologians who work with Marx to have an economic critique and an economic analysis so that they can understand why God's preferential option for the poor and then how to do that work Mm -hmm. of liberation of the poor, queer theory is also based in a reaction to Marxism. And so what that means is that when queer theory begins to, when you build a queer theology on top of queer theory, you can't separate sex, gender, and economics Mm. because sex and gender are material activities and therefore are economic acts. So there's Mm -hmm. the reason we call, when I was in school, we, we had a class called home economics and we, in that class, I, um, I made a stuffed animal. Did you learn how to sew? I learned how to sew, (laughs) which I was very thankful for. And I learned how to cook. Okay. Uh, Did a little cooking in there. My mom really was better at teaching me that than than this class. But I did some cooking in there and um, learning these basic skills for the home, right? Mm -hmm. But it's good that it's called home economics because we forget that just because, say, a woman or a man now in today's age or someone non-binary is Mm -hmm. staying at home, they are still doing economic work. Mm -hmm. They are laboring. That's why we call bearing children laboring because it is economic work. Somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to take off from work to do it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Somebody's got to sit at home and do it. Somebody's got to come home early to get the uh, ov- oh, the oven on and can't be at work all night long. Right. Somebody has to pick up the kids from school, yeah. male or female, non-binary, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we forget that the home, which is the place where sexuality often happens mm-hmm. and gender often is, is performed, mm-hmm. is an economic space. Mm. And this is tied back to the, you know, the oldest profession in the world, you know, the profession of prostitution, which is an economic act using your body for economic means, which is often something that people are forced into and not a life choice. Yeah. Right. They're forced into it because they have no economic means. And the only thing they have that they can make money off of anymore is their body. Mm -hmm. So there's uh, there's it's important as we think about where queer theology is headed to remember these this connection to to economics yeah. um, and i think the best part the best person in the book that uh, besides Marthi- Celia Alphys Reed that um Tonstad mentions is David Halperin mm. um who is reacting to Foucault and um talks about this and and deals with some of the critique that queerness brings related to economics and and politics as well. Queer theory, queer theology always being political and economic because it is dealing with sex and gender. So yeah. we have to hold that as we go forward. Most most systematic theologies uh, don't deal with ec- economics very well. Hmm. But liberation theologies do, which is, I think, why Tonstad goes to Marcelia Althus Reed. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So as we kind of wrap up our conversation, where do you think... 
from what we've read, queer theology is heading in the future because we know it's not the end, and mm. we've, we, you know, the authors have given us some hints at where they think it's going. But yeah. what, what have you surmised? Whew, that's a good question. Well, it's, I will say first off, it's pretty clear that folks are are mainline mainstreaming this word queer. Yeah, yeah. And that it looks like the future is pretty queer. Yeah. <laughs> and the future is the use of the word queer and the and the and the continued in a positive way. In a yeah, positive <laughs> a positive queering. Yeah. Of and 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 I think that means there's going to be less less rigidity, less boundaries, less less more gray area in sex and gender mm. that people are going to have to become comfort, comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. Um and more honest conversations are going to start to have to happen in the church and in Christian circles related to mm-hmm. to uh, what does it mean to lean into this? How do we do pastoral care? How do we how do we stay open minded? How do we not judge people for their particular choices or yeah. li- or lives or identities related to sex and gender? Yeah. Um, so these are those. That's an important part of it. Yeah, yeah I would say two, so two things to that. You said uh, somebody like commenting on the church or critiquing the church and I think that that's a huge, I feel like we're going to see a lot more um, you know how people say the, the particular is universal? Yeah. We're going to see a lot more monograph type queer theology publications. Yeah, I think um, so. And, and Tonstad talks about Ashan Crawley, which I have not read Ashan's book yet, but a lot, he he knows a lot of people that I went to union with. I oh, think okay. he was a he might have been a Princeton grad in seminary, okay. yeah. um, but his book is um, Black Pentecostal Breath, mm. and so I feel like we're going to see a lot more of bl- queer Black Pentecostalism coming to the forefront, and we're already seeing it because Bishop Yvette Flunder is a part of this fellowship of churches mm-hmm. that affirms all people and yeah. they're even though they are United Church of Christ affiliated right. a lot of the churches are pentecostal flavored that's not surprising if you believe what chang says about the holy spirit crossing mm-hmm. boundaries and yeah. that's one of the reasons pentecostalism was one of the most one of the first really interracial or multicultural churches in america yeah because the, they believed that the spirit broke down boundaries that were human boundaries yeah you yeah. Know. So I, I can I mean, I, I can name about five people that I went to seminary with who, yeah. who have a Pentecostal background or who I, I can imagine them writing some some yeah. good work on this in the future who aren't aren't ready to give up their Pentecostalism just because they're queer. Sure. Well, there's there. a gay Pentecostal church in Georgia. I know that. Yeah. Because, uh, we had a member a transit transfer from that church to my church when I was a pastor in Alexandria, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And brought their charismatic background with them, yeah. but were openly gay. Yeah, there's one in New York that I know of. Yeah, yeah. I uh, mean, Living Waters. That's exciting. Um, and very much a Pentecostal flair. I, I worshipped with them one Sunday, and it was just a. It was great because a lot of times I feel like a lot of my black queer friends feel like they have to lose a part of their religious mm. identity to to, yeah. to be accepted in the. In a church, right? So they go to a UCC church that is uh, more uh, Episcopal, right? There's all these compromises <laughs> yeah, that have that, to be made right. when you have a, have a have a non-dominant, you know, um, identity, right? And you're like, well, I got to go to this like welcoming church over here, but I don't like anything about it except that they're welcoming, right? You know, yeah, right, yeah. So. And so I see that happening, and I also see what Lightsey was kind of talking about. She was leading us towards something about trans theology, and. Mm. I, mm-hmm. I looked up some uh, some stuff online, and it doesn't look, look like there's many publications, major okay. publications yet about that. But 
maybe there'll be a term that's trans trans theology or something with that effect. Um, I can see that coming because maybe yeah. queer doesn't. Many LGBTQ centers always talk about the T being left out. Yeah. And so I feel like there's a very specific trans theology that is not captured in some of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I might think, not be. Yeah, I yeah. love that. And I would love to see that and read some of that. And I think the future also has a – the future always also is going to look like all theologies having to deal with bodies and economics. Mm-hmm. Right, because we've denied that too long in our systematic theologies, yeah, and and queer theology is going as are all liberation theologies going to force us to deal with bodies and politics and economics as a part of our theology. We can't bracket those from our spirituality and theology, yeah. Um, and then as Tonstad sort of points out toward the end of her book, every major doctrine is going to have to undergo a queering process, hmm. starting with Christology. And and moving into sin and ecclesiology and all these all these are going to have to be queered, and so there may be an entire volume written on queer Christology or yeah. an entire volume on queer queer view of sin mm. you know, or an entire volume queer queer ecclesiology. Yeah, salvation. What is salvation? It? <laughs> queer salvation. Queer, yes. Yeah, and I think that's but that's also instructive related to all the other kinds of theologies that we work with. We talked about like what is theology. Mm-hmm. And when you do liberation theology or you do queer theology or any theology, you you start with this sort of explosion of experience, right? Then determining a theolo- new theological category like womanism or black liberation theology or um, queer liberation theology, gay liberation theology, Jew- Jewish liberation theology, whatever mm-hmm. it is, right? Um, Latino liberation theology. And then... That has an impact on all theology. Yeah. And then we have to go back to our major doctrines and they all have to be re-narrated. And so one of the biggest ways that I've seen this happen for in like black liberation theology and womanist is that Jesus is not can't be considered white. Mm, mm-hmm. You can't have your white Jesus anymore. And we yeah. have to free ourselves from that. And, yeah. and and that's gonna be true of how queer theology is gonna impact some of these other kinds of things, you know, dominant ideas of family values, as we've talked about, right? Mm -hmm. Certain kinds of sexuality normativity Mm -hmm. are going to have to go by the wayside and the church is going to have to be ready to deal with these emerging theological categories. Or at the very least, be truthful about David in his Uh, (laughs) many, be truthful about, at the very least, could you be truthful about Abraham? And Bart. And And Tilly. Right, right. And And all these people. All of them. Yes, that's right. That's right. So, yeah. Well, this has been a journey. It's been wonderful. <laughs> yes. Um, thank you all for joining us for the P- Proud Theology podcast. Yes. Um, again, please read the books if you don't know what they are. We have Queer Theology by Lynn Marie Tonstad. We have Our Lives Matter, a womanist queer theology by Pamela Lightsey. And we have an introduction to queer theology, Radical Love by Patrick Chang. <laughs> Buy them, read them, let yes. us know your thoughts. We would love to hear from you what you're thinking about this podcast and what we can, what, what, if there are podcasts that we should do in the future that you can think of, please right. let us know. And we hope you'll visit Identiversity, the website. That's right. And check out the glossary of terms and learn more about sexuality there. We hope you'll continue to further your education on sexuality and gender using Identiversity and other readings like these books in the yeah. future. Alrighty. Thanks for joining us. Talk Bye-bye. to you soon. Thank you.